Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed a friend of mine, Priya Manivanan. Uh, Priya is a writer, she's also a data scientist, and um, we met on this in this Facebook group dedicated to non-duality. Uh, she in particular studies the Advaita Vedanta uh, yoga tradition. Uh, and this is not yoga asana, uh, this is not yoga poses, uh, it's more of an inquiry, a non-dual state of inquiry into what it is we are, existence is, what it is that consciousness is. I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, I talk to a lot of people about a lot of different things. Uh, for the past week, I've been releasing episodes on the global rise of startups all over the world, and this is a very different subject we're about to go into with Priya all about the non-dual state of consciousness. Uh, I hope you enjoy this. I hope it informs you, your life, uh, maybe. And please let me know your thoughts. I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, III. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode and any of the other episodes I'm publishing. Uh, I also want to let you guys know that I'm still doing the breathwork sessions throughout the day. Uh, four breathwork sessions, one at 8 a.m., one at 11 a.m., one at 2 p.m., and one at 6 p.m., and those times are in Pacific Standard Time. I'll be doing those on those times for another few weeks uh, before most likely moving to Columbia. I haven't solidified my plans yet, but I'll be moving to Columbia, and I'll probably have the same time at that time, but it will be a different time for everyone tuning in. But this week and next week, you can join the breathwork sessions. Um, and you can just send me an email on Twitter or send me a DM on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III uh, and send me your email address and then I'll add, add you to the email list where I send out the schedule uh, for the breathwork sessions. Um, really valuable. I just did one on live stream on Twitter and hope you enjoyed it if you tuned in. And let me know your thoughts on Priya's episode here. Have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Priya Manivanan. Uh, she is a seeker of enlightenment uh, and in the non-dual Advaita Vedanta tradition. Uh, really excited to have you on. Uh, let's start with the biggest question of all, what is enlightenment? Sure. Um, so that's, that's a lot. Okay, so enlightenment implies that you're looking for some sort of truth. Right. So to me, enlightenment has always been about attaining a state of consciousness where you know for a fact that this world isn't real. Like in a, you know, in a sense, you've transcended it. Um, and I've I've always considered that as a possibility. I have believed in that possibility since I was really young. Because um, I read the story of the Buddha when I was nine or ten years old, and I was really moved by that story. Um, and I guess I, I never really doubted that such a thing was possible for a human being. Um, so, to be fair though, at that age, when I was nine or ten, I didn't know what... I didn't know what enlightenment actually was. I just knew it was a state of transcendence. Um, it didn't start sort of coming together for me until after the age of 18. It was around when I was 18. Um, I was going through something kind of pivotal. It was actually my very first breakup. Um, so I was very open and uh, vulnerable. And I um, came across the concept of uh, a sadhu. So a sadhu is someone in India who 
has renounced everything, who sort of lives um, on the margins of society. Um, they say, I have no need for family, I have no need for relationships, I have no need for anything material. Um, so that made me wonder, um, what is it that they have that causes them to give up everything? Um, and I knew the answer to that is God. Um, maybe not God in the way that we normally understand God, but um, just this idea of consciousness, something, something beyond, something out there, something that is greater than all of this, that is worth pursuing. Um, so it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I came across the concept of Advaita Vedanta and non-duality. So that was about how many years ago? That was in 2013, so six years ago. Um, so then I came across these ideas. The world is not real. Um, there is no such thing as a person. Um, the idea of a person is delusion. Um, and uh, this thing that we are seeking um, is actually us. It is actually that thing that we call God is actually us, but we do not know that. We are deluded. It's almost like we're living in a dream. Hmm. Um, so that is, to me, that is what enlightenment is. So waking up from the dream. Yes, waking yeah. up from the dream. It's really interesting that you bring up the idea of transcendence and sadhus and all, all this stuff. Uh, and also it's really interesting to hear that from a perspective of somebody who's been uh, brought up in a Hindu culture uh, and then had the thought and concept of enlightenment uh, taught to them at an early age. For me, my earliest kind of memories of, of, of the word enlightenment comes from, well, the uh, uh, Renaissance enlightenment. And then that, and that I've always been, I've always been interested why both of them were called enlightenment, why the Renaissance yeah. was considered enlightenment yeah. and why, why um, the way it was translated in English. What is the Sanskrit word for enlightenment? Is there a Sanskrit word for enlightenment? Oh, yeah, there, there are a few words. I think the one word that um, people know best is nirvana. Um, that's the term they used in uh, Buddhist thought. Um, and then what else do we use? So we use terms like moksha. We use mukti. What else is another word? Um, I'm using this one a little bit loosely, uh, but nirvikalpa samadhi. Remember we talked about this one a couple of days ago. Um, what are some other words? I think that's all I can think of. So what now. is what is? I know moksha is liberation, right? Yes. What is mukti? Mukti is the same thing. So mukti and moksha are the same thing. Yeah. What is nirvana? Nirvana. I mean, they're all pointing at the same um, state. Um, I don't know anything much about the words moksha and mukti. Uh, to be honest, but I know that nirvana means blown out. So, um, yeah, like a candle, like a candle has been blown out. So the implication is that the um, feeling of personality has been um, dissipated. Like there was a light, there was this delusion of there having been a person inside of the person. So, for example, Priya strongly believes she's a person, but at the moment of nirvana, she no longer believes that she is Priya. But then from what I've heard from other people describing that, we also say that they've 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 experienced that enlightenment, it's impossible for that persona not to come back um, or uh, it will come back because you're kind of in, you go back into the world, which kind of brings up to this point of uh, transcendence because the way that we first connected is from this uh, Facebook group, Non-Dual Tantra, mm -hmm. uh, and he talks a lot about, uh, Christopher Wallace talks a lot about how 
there is that void and the void is transcendent and imminent um, but at a certain point you come back into life you can do the thing that the sadhus do and go off into their own world and give give right. uh, give up all material possessions and everything like that but ultimate but it seems like from this non-dual tantra yogic perspective that that is almost like a cop-out essentially because you're mm-hmm. you're engineering life in order so that you can you can uh, have no barriers to seeking God all the time. But in right now in life, that's that's where God is all the time. So it's like, why go off when you can do it here? What do you think about that? Yeah, um, actually, that's exactly what my guru um, teaches. Uh, so there there are a couple of things we could address here. The the first is um, the part about the person coming back. Um, and then the second is about um, being in the world. Mm. Um, so just a caveat, um, I am still very much a seeker. Um, so I don't know yet what it's like to be a liberated person. Um, and a lot of what I talk about here is um, just secondhand. It's what I've heard from my guru. So this is stuff that I consider to be a possibility. So as far as coming back into the world, what I've been told is that um, you know, you're on a path and you are actively seeking um, a non-dual state of consciousness um, or liberation. Um, and then, so I've heard, you have this one moment where your mind mm. sort of explodes. Mm. Um, and then the sense of being an individual person um, is gone forever. Um, and yet, you still perceive a world, Um, you still are here. And the best, like from my understanding, the way I can explain it is that when you still were a person, you took all these actions. For example, you pursued a career, you had relationships with people, and you you set all these things in motion. Um, This is what we would call karma, like just, um, you know, action and consequence, um, et cetera. It's just the flow of action. Um, So even if your sense of being a person has died, that stuff is still in motion. So all the programming that still existed in you, it still has to play out in a sense. It's almost like, um, it's almost like the the robot has gone on autopilot until it exhausts all of, until it exhausts all of the conditioning that's in there. So that's why they say it's possible for a person who has who has attained that state to come back and to operate in the world like a normal person. Um, and I've also been told that you can't really tell from the outside um, if a person is enlightened or not. Um, the only marker that you might see is if they operate without fear mm-hmm. um, because they no longer take the world to be real. They're, they're in it as if it's a dream. They're, they're sort of playing in it. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing um, that you addressed, oh, right, the cop-out, like mm-hmm. um, leaving the world. So, yeah, I, I've read about that. Um, and I've wondered about it. And when I first got introduced to Advaita Vedanta when I was uh, 22 years old, I assumed that that was absolutely necessary. Um, I thought about doing that myself. Um, there was a time where I thought about becoming um, a nun and, and just living sort of a monastic life. Um, it wasn't a very serious uh 
I wasn't thinking about it very seriously though because I knew I had things I wanted to do in the world like have a career and you know have a normal life um but when I met my guru he was the one who told me for the first time um it is possible for you to have a normal life and to also pursue liberation and if you run away from the world you are sort of you are sort of what's the right word for that you are suppressing all your conditioning so say if say i were to run away from the world and become a sadhu or a nun um and if i meditated a lot and i attained enlightenment great i come back to my normal life um and these things start to um Show agitate up. me again yeah. we'll, we'll show up show up yeah. yeah like any of my old desires um any of my old aversions like all those things would come back again and then i would sort of i would just sort of get entangled again so it's not it's not a, a perfect enlightenment unless you are able to be in the world um and uh you are able to handle it while understanding oh this is just a dream it's not real mm. um so that's why um, w my guru actually encourages us um, to us, meaning uh, me and my fellow seekers, to um, just be in the world, do what we feel impelled to do. Um, for example, career-wise, or you know, if we want to have a family, do all those things, um, and to also um, to also be doing this work internally. It's really interesting because the Vipassana 10-day meditation retreats and other meditation retreats are becoming very popular these days. And it's kind of like the modern capitalist version of, of, of a monastery, except shortened in 10 days. And so like find enlightenment in 10 days kind of thing. Uh, and uh, it's important. I've, I've, you know, I've done a lot of them myself, but it's important to do those things. But it's also, it can be gotten ahead that this practice is essentially you can section it off and say, okay, I'll do this for 10 days and then I'll come back to my life. But until you can bring what you found in those 10 days back into your life, because that's the hardest thing. That's the thing that everybody says is the most difficult thing is to do these 10 day retreats and then come back into life and, and bring it in. It's like, oh, it takes a whole lifetime to do that. Uh, so at some point it kind of becomes important to figure out how to do it. How, how do you do it? How do you bring it into your everyday life? How do you assure that uh, your life is set up in a way that's conducive to seeking or to enlightenment? Who? Um, there are a lot of things. Well, for, for one thing, I would say that um, my lifestyle has changed a lot. Um, ever since I met my guru back in 2016, um, going to him and doing my study um, and you know, meditating with him, um, and you know, discussing my my path with him, that became one of the biggest priorities in my life. Um, it's uh, I would say next to my job and my well being, it's like it's it's up there in terms of priorities, um, and that is something I do three times a week. Um, and as I, in the beginning when I did that, I was still holding on to a lot of external things. Um, but the more and more I did this work, I noticed that those things just slowly fell away. Um, like some of my relationships with people who, um, who just don't, who aren't, who don't see the point of any of what I was doing, those um, relationships automatically fell away. Um, my relationship with um, substance changed. Um, now I drink a lot less and only socially. Um, what else? 
Yeah, I, uh, the other thing I've noted is that, um, while I have dated, I've, there have, there haven't been any, um, long-term commitments in that time. Um, and when I look back on that, I, I see how, I see how much, you know, my work, my commitment to non-duality, um, really, really sort of, I guess, unconsciously, it, it got in the way of some of those relationships. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, I would say, I would say, yeah, even my commitment to my job, um, it's very much there, but I'm not as, like, I'm not quite as driven about my job the way some young people are. It's not something, it's not... <sighs> It's not something I, I spend hours and hours at. It's it's more of like a comfortable nine to five. Um, I leave my work at the office. Um, I have really cordial relationships with my colleagues, um, and I I feel like subconsciously for me, like as I've been meditating more and more and, and just spending more and more time with this work, I like these things have have been there. They have been present in my life, but not in a way that's not in a way that completely commands my attention, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, and there's a couple of different ways we could go with this. One of the questions that came up as you were talking particularly about uh, your job was, I've often found that the more work I do in this, in this realm or the more play I do in this realm, uh, the, more, the better I perform. Uh, but not as, that's not the goal. If that becomes the goal, then it, then it warps it. But it's almost like a byproduct of the practice itself that I become more... Uh, effective, uh, and I was wondering about that for you as well. But then something else came up, uh, which was you discussed it as if it's like a, you were observing all of these things happening. And when I used to hear people talk about that, I would always find myself about about that meaning about about feeling yourself kind of get separated from this action of the world and stuff like that. I would always feel kind of like lonely or um, as if something. Uh, as if that was scary because it somehow stopped living or something like that when you just kind of see the world as it as as a dream uh, and you become away from it I would get scared when people would talk about that or mm. uncomfortable or uh, like oh I don't want that uh, that's that's not what I'm interested in yeah, um, yeah but now now it is happening to me so and I uh, feel uh, it feels great because it's not it doesn't I haven't like every all these fears that I've ever had about the about this practice or about the the work um, is essentially every time I've gone through them, they never match the fear. There 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 other things happen, uh, but generally like none of them are the way that I expected them to be, um, and so that's always interesting. Which of those two things do you want to talk about? How practice makes you more effective in life, or this kind of sense of um, getting drawn away from the karma of life. Yeah, we can talk about both of those things, but um, I'm more interested in the second one, okay. just like getting drawn away. Um, and so it was actually about a year ago for me, I remember it was September of last year, that um, I started to have moments where um, my sense of identity spontaneously would just separate from uh, my mind. Um, and like, I was just seeing like things playing out in front of me. I don't really know how to describe it. Like it's, it's, you see the same exact thing and yet it looks separate from you. 
Um, and that to me, I can understand how that's really scary for a lot of people. Um, oh, and I would like to address that too, why that seems scary, uh, but I'll come back to that. Um, it's actually really fascinating though, um, because most people don't even consider that this is possible. Um, and that's what I think is so interesting because you know, before I found this work, I didn't even know this was possible. Like, you, you live life thinking you're a person and you base all of your assumptions on that premise that I am a person and I have things to do. I get up in the morning, I go to my job, there's this other person here, my mom, my partner, my sister, whomever. Um, and uh, we never think about like, oh, is there another way to be? Um, is, is it possible that uh, actually this thing that I consider to be me is just another object in my field of perception? Um, that to me is really fascinating. Um, and it's hard work though. Um, it's not easy because if, if you're willing to do that, or if you want that, if you want to be able to see yourself objectively, you have to be really honest with yourself. Um, and uh, my guru is really good at um, getting us to be honest with ourselves. Remember we talked about um, anger, hmm. how sometimes good teachers can make you angry um, because they are forcing you to look at things in yourself that you don't really want to look at. Hmm. Um, so um, if, I, if I have a moment where um, I don't meet my own expectations, you know, deep down, like for example, if I experience something like envy, for example, um, most of us would want to say, oh, that's beneath me. I, I don't get envious or I, I'm not going to express that. Um, but you have to be really honest with yourself. Like, yeah, I just saw that come up. That just uh, That's something that exists in me. That's due to my old conditioning. Um, uh, yeah, that to me is really fascinating. And it's... Um, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how to sell it either. I've been thinking about like different ways. Like, how can I possibly? Uh, I don't know if "sell" is the right word, but how do I transmit it, or not just uh, transmit, market it, or uh, express it, communicate it? No, I think I can express it and communicate it, but I don't know how to get people to see that uh, this the is benefit. the benefit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know how to that get people to see that this is um, this is a way to be because even when I first. Um, learned about this possibility there was even though i knew that i wanted it there was a part of me that was very afraid um because i didn't know what it meant to not be a person um and that's just your ego though because your ego will tell you that's just the ego's way of holding on it will find ego as it exists it as it exists in our mind like the sense of oh me i'm a person i ha i'm doing these things that aspect of our minds um that will find a way to perpetuate itself over and over again and one of the ways it does that is by saying oh wait i'm not a person anymore that can't be right i'm not going to have any fun mm -hmm. if um mm -hmm. if i attain that state uh-huh yeah uh yeah i'd love to talk more about that process and what you're talking about, I would put the, the label on it, if we can, the objective consciousness, objective witness, or like witnessing everything as phenomena of experience. Um, and for me, it's been really interesting because I've now been working with that for about a year and a half. Um, and it's, uh, the senses are really interesting in this one because my, all we really have access to in any given moment is the sensations in our body 
the senses themselves, the, the illusion that my, my eyes are creating when I look at something um, and it's sending neural messages in my brain and creating this image of what I see, but what I see is not the thing itself. It's, it's, not, um, it's just an image that my brain is dumbing down so that I can comprehend the world. And, and then the, the sense of sound, which is um, always on in a way that my eyes aren't always on um, and uh, kind of less agency or autonomy that I have over that particular sense. You have your sense of your touch, um, uh, which is of many senses all put into one, one sense together. Uh, and all of these senses can be witnessed. And if you can witness it, it's not you, right? It's, it's, it's something in your field of perception. And so basically any of that comes in. So the, the sense that's the most difficult for me to kind of uh, see as a third person is the, the visual sense. Um, and it makes sense given uh, our evolution um, in rats, rats about 3%, I'm sorry, in rats, 40% of their brain is, is given to the olfactory sense, uh, the sense of smell, really important for finding food and, and all these other things. In human beings, it's 3%. And in the same way that they have a, rats have a sense of smell, we have a sense of vision. Um, that's our primary sense. Uh, and so for, it's the hardest for me, and I imagine it's probably very hard for other people as well, is to like look at all these things I'm seeing, but then recognize that there's somebody witnessing that yeah. and then separate it from the, the sense itself. Um, and that gets really, I don't, I've had a few moments of it before. What it, you, it sounded like something you said made me think that you you do that with vision as well. Is that correct? That you're yeah. able to, to go behind and witness vision, not... What does that feel like? Uh, gosh, that is, that is so hard to describe. <laughs> um, this is really hard to describe because hey, that is why there is so much poetry and, and all this like very... Um, very esoteric sounding like literature about non-duality because people have experienced it and they just have no idea how to articulate it. All I can say is um, I mean it's just you. It's just your sense of self. It's just Inus. So it's just the Inus. Okay, let's talk about that. What is yeah. what is Inus? And again, it's getting into territory that, that becomes really difficult to describe. But what yeah. is that? <laughs> um, so say I'm I'm somebody who's uh, who's seen your stuff on on Instagram or something like that, and I wanna I wanna understand more about you 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 post about Inus, and I'm just like I don't get that. I don't understand that. What what is that? Uh, what would you tell me? I is. The first thing I would say is that it's just you. It's just the sense of self in you. Um, so for example, you think that you are Stuart. So in your head, you have um, mixed up the idea of Stuart with you, with I. Uh, but they're two separate things. Um, and I would say that for people who want to go into this sense of I am, the I-ness, um, so you know what self-inquiry is. Yeah, but maybe my listeners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll explain what self-inquiry is. It's, very sim- it's really simple. Um, it's just whenever you have a sensory experience um, or like when you're looking at something or when you're listening to something, um, just ask yourself, to whom is this experience occurring? Oh, it is me. Um, and n- nobody ever thinks to do that. Or very few people think to actually do that. 
Um, but when you take up this practice, you find that there's really no one inside. Um, and you just have this very strong conviction that you're a person when you're not really seeing a person at all. It's just some sort of, it's, it's a, it's delusion mm. actually. Um, you're just, all you're seeing is just emptiness and then all these thoughts that don't really appear anywhere, but they appear to you. Um, and I would say that that is a sense of hearing or auditory, uh, thing that, that when, when I ask myself who is, who is hearing these thoughts, the thoughts sound verbal. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. But there are also there are also fantasies or visualizations as well um, that occur in that field of thought, and those visualizations seem more emotional. Uh, but the thoughts, as they're appearing in my head, it seems like I'm having an internal dialogue, basically. Yeah, it's it's hard. Um, you're right because it, it still comes in the form of a thought. Mm -hmm. um, of course, like the whole problem here is that you just keep thinking. Yeah. Right, like mm. that's like you just need to shut that down. But um, in, wait, wait. But do you need to shut it down? Well, for moments, yes. Who's shutting it down? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, no one's really shutting it down, but um, here in in this at this level where we are, where there's still some seeking happening, um, and where we still perceive effort, like I am putting in effort to do this. Um, then it becomes necessary to shut down thought. With effort, though. Yeah. But um, I have never been able to shut off my mind due to effort. I've only it has only happened as uh, in unexpected times. Um, for me, I've never been able to figure out how to actually shut off the thought. I can, and I love witnessing the thought and allowing those thoughts to happen. But I've never gotten to a point where I can uh, apply effort uh, because effort seems to imply also. A reaction as well and this is what we're talking about seems like it's beyond kind of it's in that it's in that like Goldilocks zone where like it's beyond effort it's beyond and <laughs> yeah I don't know that, yeah yeah um, okay yeah this part is a little I guess difficult for me to talk about because um, I can talk about it I do know how to articulate it um, but it's hard for me to um, reveal it to other people because I don't know how they will take it. But this was my experience. I discovered self-inquiry in 2014 when I first read about Ramana Maharshi. Um, I tried practicing it by myself um, and I didn't get very far. Um, but I knew it was a possibility. I, I was reading a lot of Advaita Vedanta, I was reading a lot of Indian scripture, um, and I knew I wanted to get there. And then in 2016, I met my guru. Um, so I do have a guru and um, like I said the other day, um, I, I'm convinced that he's an enlightened person. Um, you can take that with a grain of salt though. That's not for everybody. I know not everyone um, accepts such a thing to be possible. Um, but to me, this is a person who has um, attained that transcendent level of consciousness, who um, does not believe he's a person and is able to speak about the truth from a direct experience. That's what I mean by guru. And um, when I was sitting with him, uh, meditating one day back in August of 2016, um, he went into um, what is called a samadhi. So we talked about this term, but I'll explain it again. Samadhi in um, Sanskrit 
is a term for going into a state of meditative absorption. Um, so, wait, wait, what is meditation absorption? Um, abs- they use the word absorb. I, I wondered why they use that word, and yet I also understand because it's really hard to explain what that feels like. But it's just a place where your mind just sort of folds in on itself, and you're not really. First of all, it's very clear mm. that you exist as emptiness, that you're not the body. Um, and uh, it also feels very good. Um, the first time I had a samadhi, it felt like um, I was high. Uh, it felt like I was high, and I also felt like um, I know who I am. I know I exist as um, empty consciousness. That did not happen to me on its own. I think that happened to me because I was sitting with my guru. So it's almost like something that can be transmitted. That's the part that I uh, mm-hmm. have trouble telling people about because I don't know how they'll take it. It mm-hmm. sounds a little too woo-woo. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like that was transmitted. And once that's transmitted, then you can develop the practice on your own. Mm-hmm. Once you have that, once you see that, like, oh, I know how to do this. I know my mind can go to that place. Then you just start to go into that place over and over again. and. The shutting down part happens um, because the way my guru explains it, we are pleasure-seeking, pain-avoiding mechanisms. And this experience of being in a non-dual state where um, I know who I am is a pleasurable experience. Um, So the mind automatically wants to go there. So when that happens, the mind shuts down because, oh, this feels good because there are no thoughts here and I know who I am now. And then obviously, you know, you come out of it and then the world appears to you again. So it's like a, um, it's like what we do for rats in order to study them is we give them uh, pleasurable things. Uh, so, and then we place, then we place them, we, we study rats and we study the brain because we place rats in, uh, in places and then give them something pleasurable to condition them to that place. Um, uh, and then so we can study the brain and study how these different brain regions work. Uh, so it's, it's like that. I guess God would be the one doing it, but uh, <laughs> that's such an interesting way of explaining it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, God is is uh, giving us place preference uh, for meditation by giving us samadhi, which is this intensely pleasurable experience of no thought, no no nothing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. Yeah. That's which that's a cool way goes of back it. into the simulation theory. Have you heard of the simulation simulation no. theory? No. So the th- simulation theory is a theory that. Um, Humans can create games, uh, and our games are getting incredibly more realistic each year as we go by. Uh, so if humans can do that, and life is like this, and as you've mentioned, many people come to the realization that life uh, is in many ways an illusion. Um, uh, so if we can create games, and those games are getting better, eventually we'll reach a point where we can create a game with extremely high fidelity, meaning that the game is almost um, not it's not possible to distinguish between the game and real life. Uh, and so if that happens, someone else has done that for us. Um, and we are living in one of those simulations, basically. Um, that's uh, simulation theory. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. interesting. Christopher Wallace describes something kind of similar in his book, Tantra Illuminated. Have mm. you read it? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. so do you remember that portion? I don't know. Uh, he, I mean, it, it's really brief. But um, yeah, there's this, uh, he uses the metaphor of um, like oh you just got stuck in this uh, sort of simulation mm. in this in this game um, similar interesting <laughs> what are your thoughts when I bring up that description I think okay so from my experience 
Um, I think that that's sort of accurate. It's hard to say. Um, what I experienced was that it's more of like a maze of thought. Um, so you start off with, um, oh, the I am, um, and, uh, and that, that basically just means nothing. And then the whole experience starts sort of, sort of, um, it happens recursively like, oh, I am, and then I am this, and then I, and then there's another thing here and then there's this thing. And suddenly there's like a whole, like this image of like world and object and, um, it actually happens in an instant. It does not happen. It's not this huge like lifetime journey. Um, it, it, it's, um, sorry, I got, I got, I, I started thinking about like two different things, That's fine. but, um, I would say it's more like that. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's just, you just got lost in a maze of thought. It's mm. just, it, it just, and the thought, um, and this was something I did experience when I was meditating was that um, this whole thing that we call a lifetime, um, that whole thing is actually happening in a moment, um, but it just carries the weight of looking like, oh, I have a past, present, future. I have all these years on me and I have all these years to go, but it's just happened. It doesn't happen anywhere. It does not happen over any length of time. It's just... It just is. And that's the part of the mechanism of the brain that's been, uh, e that has evolved, uh, which is to give us what's called the default mode network, which is the, the neuroscience way of saying the ego, um, uh, uh, and it establishes a narrative that's linear in time. Uh, but if you really inquire into it, you, you realize that all of it's happening now, and it, there has never been a point at which it did not happen now. Like it's always been happening. Yeah. Like there is just it's and it's continuously arising. So if we were to go into it right now, we could continuously be like, okay, so what am I seeing now? And then there's a whole other now, mm -hmm. and it seems like that's a narrative, but it's not. It's just kind of always here. Yeah, it's just a it's just a thing. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just it just is. Yeah. But, but we have. Oh, you know what's an image I love? Um, this is actually. Um, in uh in a talk by alan watts where he talks about um how phones used to be in in the old days where uh, you have like one mouthpiece and then you have the speaker in the other hand like people used to hold them uh, um like in in both hands i think um and yeah you, you've heard alan watts yeah. before right mm -hmm. he, he's funny um so he was like uh, if you really want to annoy a person you could hold the speaker up to um the mic and then it would just sort of bounce Recursive, back and forth yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's just this double feedback that goes on and on and on um and he used that metaphor to describe our relationship with the world mm -hmm. where there is just image there's just or rather um well they say that it's it's just vibration it's just vibration held together by thought and mm -hmm. then the thought part is um this double feedback like oh i i see this um vibrating form you know color sound whatever and then i create some story about it mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And the thing that, that I found the most funny, also infuriating at times, uh, <laughs> is that the stories never go away. Uh, you can witness the stories like any other phenomena, but if you think that you have gotten to a point where you're beyond story, it's probably, that's a story. Um, like it's all, it's all stories and the only way we communicate is through stories. Like, and so like, I, I found myself going through a time where I was like, okay, I'm done, done with all stories. There's going to be no more stories. And of course that was just a story, uh, <laughs> as, as is everything, as is these thoughts that we're using. 
Um, so we've been doing it for the last like 30 minutes, I'd say, but how do you deal with the paradox of all of this stuff being beyond thought and beyond words, yet at the same time, the only way that we can communicate it is through words, but then also there's this piece where you can communicate something that's, that's transmitted in a way. Um, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, what else, what else would you do though? Because, um, if you've gotten lost in the maze of thought, which to us is life and, you know, um, ego sense and being here, if you've gotten lost, then um, you need some, um, you need something within that image to guide you back, mm -hmm. which is basically all that's happening. You're just being guided back to where you started. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the movie Inception yep. and the totem. Mm -hmm. um, so you can think of it as like a totem. Uh, and that's why we have... That's why we have scripture, um, even though that's not for everybody and, you know, different people have different feelings yeah. about that. Yeah, there's an interesting part because I've been thinking a lot about science. And so the original from Christopher Wallace, I've learned that scripture, one of the components of scripture is that you have three things that you look to when you're trying to discover the truth. You have, uh, I believe it was your guru, you have your scripture, and then you have the community. Um, oh no no it's not it's not a group. Uh, I think that's part of the community. But you have your own your own ability to um, see the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the scripture, and then you have sangha. I think it was the community. Um, and then science has a similar thing going on too, because a lot of people. Okay, I'm getting into into stuff. I'm not sure quite sure about. So just take it with a heat of salt. But uh, 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 science. Essentially, we have this canon of knowledge that we have from science. And then people, a lot of people are kind of create, as human beings, going back to that whole story thing, we, we tend to develop religions even if we've given up religion. Um, and so a lot of people are creating science as a religion. Mm -hmm. And so they have this scripture of science studies and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Uh, and it's just something interesting. I'm not sure I really had a point, but that, yeah. <laughs> Dude, you, and you, you were on a point, so you can continue on that point, or if you have something to say about that, that'd be interesting. About what exactly? Uh, about, I guess we could go down, what is the relationship between science and scripture? Um, well, actually, a lot of people talk about um, yoga as a science. Um, mm -hmm. And... Do you believe yoga as a, is a science? In some ways, yoga is a t there is a technology of yoga, which would be all the techniques and practices and everything like that. I would call that technology um, in the same way that writing is a technology, mm -hmm. uh, in the same way that language is a technology. Um, how is yoga like a science or unlike a science? I'm not in that world. Yeah, okay, I was gonna. So yeah. I, I feel like I can't comment, and um, the reason I hardly ever use science <laughs> to to back up or corroborate like anything related to non-duality is because I know how passionate people are about science, exactly. especially um, today. Okay. Um, uh, I there there was a time where I was very averse to listening to. Um, like Charles Dawkins mm. or any of those writers or speakers because, um, not because of what they were saying, but um, there was just this like very passionate 
you know, conviction that anything to do with God is unreal. And um, it, it was almost like they were going down another rabbit hole just because of how passionately they felt about religion. Um, and that aversion um, didn't make a lot of sense to me. Mm. Um, and the other thing I would say, I don't know how accurate this is. Um, I'm not a scientist. Like I said, I'm not in that mm. world. But um, from what I can gather, not what non-duality in yoga has given me is a direct experience of things. So um, from what little I know about physics, I do know that uh, there is this idea that everything is vibration, like all of the sensory experience is vibration. Um, try as we may as human beings, I don't know if we can really see that, um, but we can have this idea like, oh yes, that, I, I guess that's a thing. Um, but through some of the quote-unquote technology we have in mm. meditation, if you go um, if you go down that road, you can see that directly. Um, at least that's something I experienced. Um, so I would that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if we have scripture in um, in you know in some of these spiritual traditions. Um, it's always it points. It doesn't tell you. It points, um, and it's it. Uh, my guru always told us um, to treat all of this as a hypothesis and to um, see if we can see for ourselves whether or not this is true. They never. It never said um, you must accept this as true. Mm. Um, and so, what does svadvaya mean to you? Uh, it's like self study. That means self study, right? Yeah. Um, what are what is the self that they are referring to when they say that? Um, they're they're just talking about the the person that um, wants to liberate themselves. Mm. Um, you just uh, you do the work on your own, right? You're not so that so in that in that sense you're implying that self is uh, is this uh, individuated self that is responsible for doing their own work. Yeah. Because I always because I've always wondered is it that or is it study of the self but study of the larger self. Oh, no, it is... Well, um, the word Uh self-study is referring to the first one. Okay. But ultimately, yes, the work is also about um, studying the self. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, but it does mean the first one. Yeah, because in that way, if if it is the self, if it is the larger self, and it's you're studying not only the individuated self and the reactions that the individuated self has, but also the relationship between selves, between, uh, uh, between myself and others, or between... Uh, or even studying animals because I know I remember, read like 10 15 years ago that like you can tell a yogi if they're studying animals if they're watching animals or if they're watching nature and they're kind of like just developing laws or developing some understanding of what nature is about um, and so this if that's true then I would say that science is this study of self because you're you're getting patterns into the larger whole so I mean we didn't have this understanding beforehand. It was easy to see that life is inter- interdependent. Two thousand years ago, you could see that the clouds, you know, that would rain, and then you would see the, you would make the guess that the rain helped the plants grow and stuff like that, and then the the plants would die and turn into fertilizer, and then would would. It, it, so it was easy to see that it was interdependent. But then science basically came in and started to study the human body and realized that not only is my body. Um, have like this skin around it that makes this membrane that makes me an individuated uh, separate self from the things around me 
but also within um, those my body there are billions of different organisms and cells so you can't really like you can't pick me apart and say oh that so that food that I ate yesterday that is now outside of me you can't say that 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 is not me like where does the line between me and the food begin and end um, I don't know if you thought about this stuff before or <laughs> Uh, a little bit. Okay. A little bit, yeah. Um, of course, yeah, you can go down that um, line of thinking. Uh, the one thing I would say that does not help in this work, um, even though, it, it, of course, like, when you, if you have a mind that, that loves to, like, philosophize, mm. you're, you're going to think, and you're going to ask questions. But the one thing we are discouraged from doing in this work is going down a lot of philosophical rabbit holes. Mm. Because um, at some point, um, they stop helping. Unless you get entertained by them. Unless you get entertained by them. <laughs> but then you, you miss the point. Oh. Um, and the point is... Um, the point is to shut it down so you go back into yourself and mm. find out who you are. Mm. Um, and uh, I know this because I have been guilty of it. Uh -huh. uh, so sometimes when I would go to my guru um, and I would ask him questions, quite something like what you were just asking me, and... Um, he would point out to me that I was just thinking too hard about uh, it. He's yeah. like, there's no reason you need to be thinking about that. It is enough if you can see that mm -hmm. it is it is you, uh -huh. and it is you having experience of all of these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I would say I disagree with that, because I think uh, as long as I'm aware or witnessing myself in that process, mm -hmm. and as long as I can go, as long as I'm not believing the thoughts that I'm saying, like... I think it's fine to go to go hog wild with all these different thoughts and just basically be the witness of all these different thoughts because it's all appearing within me. But as long as I can maintain that witness, which I often I don't, but uh, but I that because th that's the main thing I've learned from working with my teacher Jonathan Harrison is that he will do a similar thing, but instead of stopping it, he'll just be like, "Who is the one witnessing that?" Um, and then that points me to the place that. I need to go, basically. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, what are so what are you doing now in terms of uh, your work? What what are you like? We've been taught. We talked previously about how you're kind of making videos, uh, sharing this stuff with people. Why are you doing this? I felt like I just wanted to talk about it. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I, it's something I felt impelled to do. I don't think every person who is on this path, I have uh, a handful of friends who do this work as well. Mm. Um, not all of them have felt an impulse to talk about it. In fact, um, one of the things I'm struggling with personally is um, talking about the experience, not just because I don't know how to articulate it, but um, there is, we are warned about um, discussing this with other people for several reasons. Mm. One being, um, it causes you to re-identify mm. as someone who knows, right? It, it makes, it gives you an opportunity to make your ego bigger. Like, oh, I know something. I have, I have something to talk about. Um, so I have to watch that all the time. Um, but even when I started doing the videos and like, talking about this stuff on social media, um, I understood what I was doing. Um, so there's that. And two, people just don't really seem to hear it. Um, it's not necessarily <laughs> a knowledge that, you know, a lot of people want. Yeah. 
because um, it doesn't promise you anything basically there's no there's no there's yeah no ad- advantage well that goes back to the point you were making earlier about f- finding the benefit and communicating the benefit to people um but yeah there's no like you because you, you can't really say that if you practice non-dual meditation that you will uh become wealthy that you will solve all your problems that all these different things will ha- will happen because none of that happens like it's more an, like Thich Nhat Hanh's way of saying it, which is like, it's not about gaining, it's more about losing, mm-hmm. um, losing your, your identity. Yeah. And very few people in this world are motivated to lose their personality. And I, I find that oftentimes was subconscious for my, I, analyzing myself and looking at myself in, um, and then thinking about how I can transmit it to somebody who fit what I was 10 years ago. Most of the time I would be having a conversation and if somebody brought something up like that I just wouldn't understand it it would just go right over my head mm-hmm. or I would stop the conversation because I was bored or, or like you <laughs> know yeah so it's it's like you can only basically just share it and it's part of what I do with the show too is like um is not all my conversations are like this but I would say about maybe one tenth of my conversations two tenths of my conversations are just pure like we're just trying to find out the truth uh and uh and I don't, I always wonder like whether people are, are find value in those and stuff like that. Um, and I do think a large part of my listeners do the most feedback is like, is usually I get from doing these, these types of interviews as well. But it was funny cause I'm, I, I also have to do the social proof thing that we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier because a lot of people won't even listen. So here's, here's an idea f- for you as well. Like if, if you want to get people to listen, get somebody who talks about this stuff, who also is a leader, um, because then people will listen. They'll listen for the wrong reasons, though, uh, and I'd be curious to what that means as well. Um, but yeah, it's a weird thing. I think I think Christopher Wallace talked about like uh, Shakti Pot essentially that, mm-hmm. that until you've had the experience of Shakti Pot, then none of this stuff makes any sense. Um, yeah. So it's like, and that's what I was describing to you mm-hmm. um, earlier in the conversation with about your experience with your yeah. teacher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can people find out more about, about, uh, your videos? How can they find your videos? Oh, so, um, I've only made two so far. The second one went up today. Um, they, it's, uh, on a Instagram account called non-dual yoga. So it's non-dual dot yoga. Um, and I've shared, um, just snippets I found from scripture that I think are helpful. I've shared quotes, I've shared images and I've, um, tried making videos mm-hmm. Um, to try to communicate some of these ideas um and I'm, I'm well aware that it might not reach a lot of people and that you know several you know most are not listening but um it's it's okay because i think that um whatever has come up in me that wants to communicate this actually let me put it this way my gurus grew um, his name was Swami Chinmayananda, and he was, do you remember I mentioned him to you? Um, he was very, very famous. Um, he, he lived and did his work in the, uh, through most of the 20th century. Um, and he's the reason that Advaita Vedanta has become so popular. Um, and he went around the world giving a lot of lectures. And uh, the interesting thing is that people would say that um, it sounded like Swami Chinmayananda was talking to himself a lot of the time. (laughs) Um, Because from that perspective, there's no one here but you. Who are you talking to but yourself? Um, For me, when um, I 
find a way to communicate this to other people, whether it's over social media or I'm just talking about it in a conversation, um, it serves as a reminder to me as well that there's no one here but I. I won't say me because I don't want to imply that the only person here is Priya, but it is just the I mm -hmm. that is here. There's and which you share with everyone else. We all share this I. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, um, and I, I'm also a believer in the idea that um, if you're meant to hear it, you will hear it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the words won't mean anything to you. And um, I can say them. And I've had it said to me several times. You are not Priya, you are God, you are consciousness. And still, it, it goes right over my head. Sometimes I'm like, I just don't get it. I don't understand. Yeah. Um, but it happens when the time is right. It happens when your mind is in that place where it's ready to let go. Um, and uh, you can't force someone to see it. Um, all you can do is say it. And if it lands, it lands. If it doesn't, okay, mm -hmm. you expressed it. Mm -hmm. What is, uh, just to wrap up, what is one piece of scripture that you've recently read uh, that's been very helpful? Oh, okay. There is, can I, can I give two sure. that yeah, I love? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. So the first one is Viveka Chudamani. Um, and uh, I know that's a, it's a mouthful, but it means the uh, crest jewel of discrimination. It was written by Shankara um, in, I think, the 8th century. Um, and it's all about discrimination. So um, any experience that you have, discriminate between who's the one seeing and um, the thing that is just an object. And it actually, it's, it's brilliant. It takes you through the whole process of thinking you're a person to the middle parts where you have all these questions and you're trying to like figure it out, which is where I am right now, um, to the end where you understand, oh yes, I'm not a person, I am consciousness. Um, and he shows that process very, um, very, it's just really brilliant because every time you get to a certain place where you have a certain question, he ends up answering that question right away because he knows that this process is almost exactly the same for every human being. Mm -hmm. So that's the first one. Um, the second one that um, I've been reading for a long time is called Yoga Vasishta. Um, and... Uh, I don't know if that's something that's going to appeal to everyone, but Yoga Vasishta is incredible because that was the one that opened my eyes to the idea of the world being an illusion and um, just the idea that I just got lost in some maze mm. um, and it's not like, oh, my soul got trapped in a body and uh, it's now like struggling to get free and go to this other place. It's just, oh, I started to think too hard about the fact that I'm a person. I really started to believe it. I convinced myself I was a person and now it's time to go back to where I started. Mm. It, it just made that, that, um, that part of it so clear. So the first one, how do you spell it? Viveka Chudamani, um, so it's long. It's V-I-V-E-K-A-C-H-U-D-A-M-A-N-I. Um, and maybe you can put the name in, in your... The show notes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the second one? Yoga Vasishta, so yoga, uh -huh. um, Y-O-G-A, and then Vasishta, V-A-S-I-S-H-T-H-A. Uh, and then are there any translations of either of those that you remember that would be helpful for people? Yeah, um, Viveka Chudamani, the um, translation and commentary by Swami Chinmayananda is really good. Um, it's practical. It's not very like um, out there. It's just like, how do I practice this? And then the version of Yoga Vasishtha that I, that I love is by Swami Venkateshananda. Hmm. 
Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you for tuning in into this episode and hearing me and Priya discuss Advaita Vedanta. If you did enjoy it, I'm releasing episodes every weekday at the time because I have such a big backlog of episodes that I'm just con- continually going to publish them. I I am establishing some sort of editorial content on this. I'm only publishing the episodes that should be epi- ep- published. Uh, the dilemma I'm facing in is that all of them are turning into really good episodes. So I want to publish them all and I want to uh, do my duty to the listeners and also do my duty to the guests that we have this important conversation. And then I also get it out there to the people who want to hear it. And so I'll be publishing episodes every day. And I've also got breathwork sessions that you're welcome to join 10 minute breathwork sessions designed to get you back onto focus throughout your workday. And yeah, have a great day and come find me on Twitter at Stuart Allsup III. Have a great day.